0: The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Naibo. Today, it seems appropriate to tell you about a card game I developed several years ago. It's called Rites of Cthulhu. To research the game, I dove deep into the works of H.P. Lovecraft. The game features six mini-card games based on Lovecraft's tales. During my research... I discovered a new appreciation for this maverick horror author's work. Lovecraft himself said, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. About the game. The entirety of mankind hefts no consequence, for our world is merely a borrowed rock. Long before ancient life, as indicated by human evidence, winked into existence, The Great Old Ones walked our landmasses, lived in our oceans, and hung in our skies, but most of them eventually left Earth and fell into a deathlike sleep. These horrors of the universe render us no more significant than the insects that we crush under our boots as a matter of living. Some humans divide themselves into cults and commit their existences to worship of elder beings, Great Old Ones, and Outer Ones, but even the most devout cultists go insane upon encountering the lowliest of the transdimensional beings they worship the rites these cultists practice often bring nothing more than ruin and madness but they can also bring grandeur that surpasses imagination rites of cthulhu is an unnameable twist on traditional card play deeply seated in hp lovecraft's cthulhu mythos rites of cthulhu allows 2 to 6 players to become cultists and perform six rites based on stories by H.P. Lovecraft. During each rite, players compete for artifacts, such as the Necronomicon, Henry Accolay's brain, the Jade Hound, and other iconic objects from Lovecraft's tales. The player at the end of the game with the most artifacts wins. Rites of Cthulhu comes with a deck of 68 cards and six rites tablets. You can pick up a copy of Rites of Cthulhu at Amazon.com. Welcome to the second Midnight Lunar episode of the Terrifying Lies podcast. For this groundbreaking interview, I visited the Miskatonic University Library, where I met one of the foremost authorities on occult writings housed there, works such as the Necronomicon. His name is Professor William Dyer, leader of an Antarctic expedition just over a year ago. With no more delay, I present the entire interview. I sit in the library of the Miskatonic University, Arkham, Essex County, Massachusetts. A thunderstorm pommels the outside of the building with its violence and rain, but the library's hearth protects us from the elements with a comfortable fire. The shelves that stand around me contain probably one of the largest collections of occult books in the world. Across the table from me, is none other than William Dyer, professor of archeology span at this fine Ivy League institution. Mr. Dyer specializes in research of artifacts and locales associated with occult activity. Nearly one year ago, Professor Dyer returned from an Antarctic expedition. His efforts became known in the scientific community when Professor Lake from the biology department here at Miskatonic sent a telegram during the expedition back to his associates here in Arkham, The Telegraph described unsettling details of his findings in Antarctica. This communique has motivated a second group, the Starkweather-Moore Company, to launch a follow-up expedition to the region. Now, Professor Dyer has remained quiet up to this point regarding his findings in the Antarctic Circle. But Mr. Starkweather and Mr. Moore's aspirations seem to have motivated him to break his silence. Before we get started, Professor Dyer, is there anything you want to say to Starkweather and more?
1: Well, very simply, it just don't do it. It's uh, I've uh, I have published some uh, some things, you know, to the extent of what we saw, but I did not, you know, uh, publish exactly the entire uh, situation. So uh, I'm I'm here to basically uh, give the whole story so that Starkweather and Moore can just stop their expedition and don't tread where they
0: shouldn't be going. Okay, well, we're gonna hope that Starkweather and Moore have a chance to listen to this interview then. And let's get into your story. Let's start from the beginning. Frank Peabody, part of the engineering department at Miskatonic University recently, invented a radical piece of tech for the architectural and natural resources drilling industry. Can you tell me about Mr. Peabody and his technology?
1: Well, he created this really uh, just advanced drill bit that could uh, uh, bore down into, into the rock. It could uh, you know, basically go further, uh, and it was lighter too, which is something that we would need for an Arctic expedition. We can't um, transfer you know, heavy equipment in. So he made this uh, very effective, uh, very light, you know, comparatively light uh, uh,
0: machinery so that
1: we could just go through the strata
0: and see what's down there. Okay, excellent, that's intriguing. Professor Lake in the biology department at Miskatonic University took an advanced team and discovered something strange in the ice, according to your records. Can you describe what he found? Well, yeah, we
1: set up a camp uh, in, in the Antarctic and then Professor Lake went a little bit further in and, uh, and so we had our base camp and this is uh, uh, the, the telegram that you, that you uh, referred to a little bit earlier, where he found all of these incredibly interesting artifacts of uh, ancient life and you know, uh, that basically looked at how the Antarctic was not the, uh, always the Antarctic, that it was once a tropical re- region, but because of plate tectonics, it had moved you know, from this tropicals uh, point of the Earth to you know the southern point, and it became you know this frozen wasteland. And so he found some initial some initial findings. Uh, he found some like kind of like trilobites and you know things like that, some rock impressions that were very very interesting. But then they they burst into uh, an open space, in a cave, and in the cave they found these very large, six to eight foot sort of Barrel things with like wings and kind of five pointed star uh, barrels, and they—they they were unlike anything that we'd ever seen. And in fact, he was having a hard time deciding whether it was an animal or a plant. It was something in between. It did not have like organs, like you know we would uh, uh, sort of attribute to regular sort of mam- uh, mammalia or. Uh, or birds, or fish, or really anything on this earth. Uh, so, uh, so he found these things frozen in in this in the uh, in this cave, and he he brought them out uh, and started to uh, started to look at them. Uh, they had to build a pen for the dogs because the dogs hated these things. they they had these sledge dogs, and the sledge dogs just wanted to attack them. There's something about their essence, their smell, something that the dogs just did not. Trust, and they were trying to break out and either, I don't know, attack these things or flee or something. They just did not like them.
0: Wow, interesting. That is completely intriguing as I don't believe that there's any precedent for that kind of a finding. No. Well, Lake actually stopped corresponding with you. Uh, You were saying before the interview during the mission, you and Danforth, a graduate student from Miskatonic U, didn't you go to investigate Lake's camp? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, so Dansforth, he hes a—he's a pilot, uh, which is you know, very, very nice, very convenient, so that we you know we could get down there. So we we took one of the planes and we and uh, we flew down in into uh, Professor Lake's camp, and uh, it it was obvious why they had you know stopped corresponding with us because uh, the camp was a mess. And there was uh, there were dead bodies, dogs, and and, and people uh, that uh, that were that were there, and
0: uh, it was
1: it was it was hard. I mean, it was uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the one of the one of the the researchers there was cut open like they had been, you know, experimented on vivisected or um dissected or you know something they i guess something wanted to look and see how we ticked just like we wanted to see how they did
0: you know for me and probably for most of the rest of the sane world we probably would have gotten out of there at that point but with most of lake's crew as well as the dogs slaughtered by what you're saying there was one member of that party that you said there was one member of that party that was missing. Uh, what were your thoughts on what happened? Well, there was, uh, it's, it seemed that we, we couldn't
1: account for all of the dogs, and we couldn't account for all of the people. And there was some equipment and some other things that were just missing. So it, it seemed as if one of the members, Gedney, had just gone insane and killed everyone, all the dogs, everyone,
0: and gone to the lakes.
1: Yeah, gone to the lakes to just trash the uh, to just really um, trash the place and uh, leave with some of the equipment and uh, some of the dogs. But I mean, it, it didn't make sense because it it didn't seem like you would have enough dogs to pull, you know, him in a in a sledge.
0: And yet, and yet, there's a member of your, there's a member of Lake's crew that has been dissected. So Gedney went to so far as to, to what?
1: I, I don't know. And at at the time, you know, it it, it seemed that Gedney was the, the best. You know, it was Occam's razor. It was the easiest. uh, It was the simplest answer to all of this. That you know, that someone, you know, just went insane. Mm. And, you know, lost it and then killed everyone and then um, did to, you know, to the people what was done to the, the,
0: these star elder things. Well, and I think that behavior is precedent. And I think, I think madness tends to come out on expeditions such like this where you have a few people in a smallish locale all together all the time someone can snap
1: yeah and then there's also the idea of the 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 looming winter coming that if we don't get out of there fast enough then we're going to be we would be stuck there for basically another six months Mm. and so there's that pressure also not only the pressure of you know uh being in close quarters of being on the boat getting there but then there's the you know uh, the close quarters of you know getting you know to the to the location drilling uh, always seeing the same faces and having that looming pressure on you all the time and to where uh, sometimes it just seems as if the, the mind would just snap but um i i don't want to blame everything on getting it you know i don't want uh, people to think that I'm blaming this on Getney. I'm just saying that this is what I thought at the time. Ah, okay. Um, and I believe that Getney is, you know, absolutely uh, a victim just like everybody else in that camp.
0: Okay, well, let's get, let's get back to our narrative then and, and uh, unfold this mystery. Lake and his party are either dead or missing. You and Danforth decide to mount a search by air in your airplane. What'd you see from the sky? Well, we, we came across what, uh, what we would
1: only, you know, describe as uh, the Mountains of Madness. The Mountains of Madness? Well, we, we called it the Mountains of Madness basically after uh, the work of Lord Dunsany, uh, who in um, his uh, Hashish Man from The Dreamers Tales, you know, says, And we came at last to those ivory hills that are named the Mountains of Madness, Mm. and that's just what they were. They were just these giant, you know, just this giant mountain. It was uh, bigger than anything that we've, you know, seen. You know, thirty-two thousand feet. Whoa, easy. You know, so whoa. Whoa. Yeah, it's it's something that would dwarf the Himalayas even, Mm. and uh, we. We found a way to to pass through these mountains and uh, go through this sort of valley and go to the other side of the mountains. And what we saw was just beyond imagination because there was, it looked, at first, it looked like a, a honeycomb. And, you know, that was built, that was just, that was worn into the side of this mountain. Then we got closer and we started realizing that these Uh, this honeycomb actually had this uh, very intelligent structure to it. And they they were just these cyclopean uh, buildings that were just enormous, built onto the side of this mountain. And it was an intelligence that had put this together. And it was uh, exhilarating and horrifying. At the same time, you know, to to see this. Mm. Because this was something that no human had, had put
0: together. Well, that's amazing. And even more amazing to me was, according to the advanced notes that you gave me, you actually touched down your airplane on the outskirts of this Cyclopean city, as you say. Yes. Of Antarctic ruins. What happened next? Well, we uh,
1: we are pushed forward by curiosity. And that's that's what makes us human. And looking back, you know, at what we did now, it just um, I wish we had never done it. But uh, we found a, a flat spot, and Danforth could uh, you know could land you know the plane on there with the uh, the snow skis, landed uh, landed fine, and we uh, we got out and we uh, basically got all of our our flashlights together and um and we had some some camera equipment and we decided to just sort of kind of trek forth into this uh, this city that's built on the mountains of madness
0: that's amazing okay so you're heading into this city you're looking around uh you're looking at walls you're looking at ceilings Explain a, be, a little bit about what you're finding in in these ruins. Well, it's uh, everything was
1: written in in a language that you know I'd never seen or you know even could even
0: comprehend. So you're uh, seeing writings. There, some, is it, it,
1: it looked like some writings, but there was.
0: Uh, but the thing that is universal, like, like books, You've, you found books of writings?
1: No, there was just like writings and you know some some things written up on the walls. Oh, so carved
0: like murals. Sc- and, yeah, some and, murals
1: and stuff. But uh, the thing that we we could interpret uh, a little bit better uh, would be the artwork that 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 went with the writings. I mean, we couldn't uh, we couldn't make sense out of the out of the the language that was uh, that was given, uh, but we. Um, but we could like sort of piece together a, a narrative and a history using the artwork uh, Some of the artwork it seemed was missing that the, there was places where it looked like maybe a statue was or you know something like that and it was just gone and so it it almost felt like the city had been abandoned um, for you know for some other place and they brought, with them what they could but uh, what remained was enough to piece together a little bit you know the history of these inhabitants
0: well no doubt this 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 you got back from this expedition over a year ago just over a year ago no doubt you've had some time to look through this material look through your your drawings and maybe cross-reference it with some of the books that actually we can see around us here in the Miskatonic University, I, I realize that you're an expert. Uh, as far as as far as far an expert can be found on, on some of these books and some of these manuals, you're talking about beings that lived in this enormous ancient ruin. Can you tell me, maybe with a little bit more specificity, just who might have resided within those walls? Well, the... Uh the Necronomicon, which
1: is actually, um, I think it should be right on that shelf over to the right over there. Um, but uh, I've, you know, I'd previously gone through uh, the Necronomicon. And after coming back from the, uh, uh, this expedition, I looked through it a little bit, um, with a little bit more scrutiny, I think with a, a better understanding of what I was seeing before in, in this book. Uh, but what I believe that what we saw was this city of the Elder Things, who had come uh, from another planet, uh, you, know, you know, millions and millions of years ago, and had s- established uh, life here on Earth, and created this, uh, this city. As a part of that, they created these Shagas, and which were uh, used for them as, as these beasts of burden. They were, they were just there for, for labor and to help create this city. And uh, there, it seemed as if there had been uh, an uprising at some point in time and uh, several sort of wars that went on uh, within the existence of this, uh, this city. It, it's and this city, when it was built, was built in a more tropical region. It seems from the artwork, you know, you could see that there was, you know, tropical plants and trees and and flowers, uh, within you know within the city, and which could not you know could not uh, survive in this harsh exe- uh, you know, environment whatsoever. And so it you know, it seems to reason that uh, the yeah, this city had befallen you know many tragedies you know with with wars, and the final tragedy being like tectonics just pulled this city into a more southern region and it didn't it made it so that it wasn't so much uninhabitable by these creatures but just undesirable for these creatures and they they seem to have abandoned it uh, um, for um greener pastures
0: so they they just up and left
1: they just yeah so it seems that they left and they took with them what they could and then left behind everything you know everything else it was just it seemed uh, like they just
0: left I'm getting a disturbing feeling even conversing with you about this I find this I find this severely unnerving I have to ask while you were there, did you encounter any other living beings in those catacombs with you? Well, there, there was the penguins. Okay, well, just, so just penguins.
1: Nah, well, um, these were enormous penguins, and it just, it seemed like they had no sight. They were bigger than the king or the emperor pem- penguins by at least a foot or so. and so they're like they were the size just, of a man. They were, they were enormous and they, they seemed to be blind living in this, uh, living in the catacombs. And it was, yeah, they were very, very off. There was something not right about them that just made being around them, you know, just gave you this uneasy
0: feeling. So you're walking the halls with these enormous penguins, probably curious about what you're doing there because they obviously haven't seen anything like you. As you walked the halls of that ancient city, did you ever see any signs of Lake and his party?
1: Yeah, we we did find a sledge, and it you know it uh, we we looked through it. There were some supplies, all the you know the, the, the supplies that we figured were missing, and um, there were the missing dogs and. And, and Gedney's body was, was there
0: on the sledge. So was Gedney frozen in the act of driving the sledge? No, it seemed as if he was
1: put on the sledge and drugged there. He had been dead for quite some time. And he, it looked like he died um, from violence and not from exposure.
0: What about the dogs? In what state were the dogs?
1: Same. They look, They. It looked like they had died in a, in a fight. So just utterly torn apart. Yeah, pretty much. It's. They were. They were brought there for some. Uh, curi- for some. You know, some curiosity, brought them there, and so it wasn't their curiosity. It was something else's curiosity.
0: So I'm putting things together here. So back at. Lake's advance camp. There's the body of one of your party who's been dissected. And you later find Gedney, who's died of violence, placed on a sledge, and drug into the Cyclopean city. Was this a continuation of some form of experimentation? What was going through your mind here? I, at that point,
1: I think the only answer that I have, and it's, It's not a logical answer. But I don't think that the elder things were entirely dead. I mean, they seemed dead, you know, by lake standards, but by lake standards, he couldn't figure out even what what it was, whether it was an animal or a plant, or, you know, he couldn't figure it out. And so if you don't know what it is that you're looking at, how do you know if it's dead or not?
0: So you're walking the caves with something.
1: So whatever drug, that sledge, you know, to this point, was in there with us.
0: Well, you had to be scared. But all you've seen of life in this cave is enormous mutant penguins. Were there signs of anything maybe more menacing than those penguins in those ruins? Well, we we heard a sound
1: And there was this smell about the place that I just, it's, it's like nothing I can really explain. Uh, But then we started hearing these sounds from, uh, from down in the, uh, in the catacombs. And it sounded like, "tekalili, tekalili," And it was just this sort of high-pitched whistling
0: sound. Hmm. Okay, so... What are you, you going to do? Like, were you, had you repelled down into this area? Had you, you know, how, do you know your way back? What, have you taken yeah. any? Okay. Yeah,
1: we had, we had taken precautions. We had used, um, we had gotten a couple of uh, notebooks and torn out pages to try to, you know, leave a, a, a breadcrumb trail, uh, you know, in, into this, into this cavern. So we, we knew that we could, well, we were confident that we could get out. And get back to our our uh, our, our airplane that was part that was uh, that was up on the ridge, but uh, something about curiosity, you know, just pushes you. So
0: and you, you did not go into the catacombs.
1: We we went a little bit further, yeah.
0: What did you find? Because you're you're heading straight toward this high pitched whistling sound that you describe. What did you find in there? There.
1: There was something that came at us, and it took up basically the whole cavern. We, I only got like a, a sense of it, you know, through the flashlight, um, because it was you know, showing you know, shining into pure darkness, and there was something coming up the. The cavern at great speed. It was it was enormous, and it was like the front end of a locomotive. That's kind of the only way that I could explain it. It was just coming towards us, and I only got a glimpse because at that point I turned and ran. It's I, you know it was the only thing I could do, and so uh, Dansworth and I ran, and. Didn't, didn't look back. You? Yeah, it would just take, take, take too much time to look back. Somehow you outpaced this thing? Somehow. And we, we got to the, uh, uh, we got to the airplane and uh, Dansforth uh, went through the, uh, the pre-flight check uh, blistering speeds. Uh, probably skipping several steps, and he got us moving and got us out of there.
0: I'm so glad you and Danforth got out alive, and unscathed. At least two of you. Well, Danforth, not so much.
1: Um, he, uh, we had to circle around to try to get you know get through that pass again, and he, he gave me the controls. I mean, I'm, I'm no pilot by any means, but I mean, I could, you know, I've been trained well enough to just, you know, hold a, you know, hold a yoke and, you know, kind of manage, you know, make, make my way that way. Uh, but he wanted to sort of like go back and, and look and see what, you know, one, take one last look, I guess, like, you know, Saul's wife. Um, and he looked back and he saw something.
0: What did he see? Can you tell us
1: what he saw? He never said. All, all that happened was is he started screaming and something in his mind snapped because he saw something that really just should not be.
0: You said, you said Danforth didn't get out unscathed, yet you're here. And Danforth was in the same plane as you when you escaped. Well he saw it, I didn't. So the only difference is he saw something and you didn't see something. Yes. Well where's Danforth right now? I would like to interview. I would like to interview Danforth as well. Um he's he's in an asylum. He's in an asylum.
1: Yeah, he has he has days that are good and days that are bad. He screams horrible things in his sleep and has no recollection of it when he wakes up. Um,
0: Well, some of the things that you study are known to bring on madness. You are one of the authorities of much of the literature that is around this book that quite frankly, I don't have the bravery myself to peruse through those pages. And I don't suggest you do. Why not? Can you tell me a little bit about the literature here? It's, uh, it's a
1: book of, um, that was written, you know, many, many years ago by the mad Arab Al-Hazred, and he You're
0: specifically referring to the Necronomicon. To
1: the Necronomicon specifically, yes, which, um, like I said, this library has a very, very fine uh, translation of it. And it's, uh, it just tells a history of the world that is... Probably not something that, that mankind is really prepared or ready for, yeah. you know, to, to hear. And what we found in those caverns only substantiates the book itself. Mm. And so I had, you know, I had l- looked through the book, you know, somewhat beforehand, but compared to, you know, what I, how I've looked at it since returning. You know, I've, I've gone through and, and sort of realized that uh, there, there are things out there that, that we should just live in our ignorance and be happy mm. and don't try to, you know, push into these bounds.
0: What? Well, that brings me to a conclusion. We began this interview, and you actually agreed to this interview based on the Starkweather-Moore Company's intention to go and re-explore those Mountains of Madness as you have referred to them, can, what do you have to say to Starkweather and Moore or to anybody, for that matter, interested in dabbling in the Mountains of Madness or in any of these occult affairs? It's, it's something that can only end
1: in tragedy. The Starkweather Moore expedition will end in tragedy. It was it will like, succumb to the same fate that we had, and there's no other outcome. Um, there's no preparedness. It's just walking into the into the mouth of madness and being completely consumed by what is in there.
0: That is absolutely mind-blowing. So I would caution Starkweather and more as you listen to this interview to heed the words of Professor William Dyer. And to those out there who are interested in more information about Professor Dyer's expedition, you can get his book. It's called At the Mountains of Madness. And he, he compiled his notes and turned them over to a transcriber, Mr. HP Lovecraft, who has put that into a format that, I mean, are people gonna go insane if they read your notes?
1: No, uh, I would hope not. I mean, I, I wrote it in a way that is a warning, but it would, I would hopefully, I would, I would not hope that, you know, that the, uh, you know, the reader would go mad themselves.
0: Well, we encourage you to pick up a copy of his book. Do you have anything else to say to the world or to our audience? Professor William Dyer. Just stay away
1: from the things that should not be.
0: Thank you. This has been an exclusive interview with Professor William Dyer in the Library of the Miskatonic University, the greatest collection of occult literature On this earth. Thank you for joining us. This has been an interview with Professor William Dyer based on the novel At the Mountains of Madness, written by H.P. Lovecraft. Professor William Dyer was played by Professor Patrick Murphy, who I've known and loved for decades. Patrick teaches psychology, AP psychology, and debate at the Weber School District. He also works as an adjunct instructor in the Department of Communication at Weber State University. Aside from Patrick's literary prowess, he's a pop culture fanatic. He spent the better part of two decades incorporating comic books, science fiction, and all things nerdy into his teaching curriculum. He's organized and participated in numerous panels at San Diego's Comic-Con International, spoke at academic conferences, and wrote a textbook on student-generated autobiographical comics. Murphy's number one goal is finding alternative paths to student engagement and learning. Patrick is also a filmmaker. Perhaps his most appropriate piece to this interview is his film The Cultist Next Door. You can watch this film on YouTube by visiting the link in this episode's description. While you're there, I recommend that you subscribe to his YouTube channel. It's called Chupacabra Productions. A while ago, two author friends of mine, international best selling author Larry Correa and Steve Diamond, started a writing advice podcast called The Writer Dojo. If you're a writer, I recommend that you subscribe to their podcast. They offer some of the best advice I've heard on writing and marketing. Well, just before their launch, Steve Diamond asked how I would feel about composing the theme song for their podcast. I was up to the task. They don't play the entire song on their show, so I thought I'd share it here. I now give you the complete theme song for the Writer Dojo podcast. Enjoy. has been the terrifying lies podcast please come again you're welcome here